Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on Chicago Tonight. I'm Paris Schutz. Brandis Friedman has the evening off. Here's what we're looking at. Hundreds gather for the funeral of fallen Chicago police officer Andres Vasquez Lasso. Shows a sign of what the city of Chicago has done to the Inglewood area. The impact of a shuttered train stop on Englewood and how residents are organizing to reopen it. We have to keep an open mind about this until there's definitive evidence. A look at the likelihood COVID-19 could have emerged from a lab leak in China. And Paris, as you mentioned, I'm in Greater Englewood, where I'll be reporting live tonight as part of our Chicago Tonight in Your Neighborhood series. We've got the latest on the controversial plan to replace Whole Foods with discount grocer Save-A-Lot, as well as on the effort you mentioned to reopen a long-shuttered Green Line station. But for now, back to you. All right, Nick, thanks a lot. And now to our top story tonight. A line of mourners stretched for blocks in Oak Lawn to pay final respects to Officer Andres Mauricio Vasquez Lasso. Last week, he was shot and killed responding to a domestic violence call. Chicago Tonight's Joanna Hernandez was at the funeral and tells us more about how he's being remembered. A sea of blue wrapped around 32-year-old Officer Andres Mauricio Vasquez Lasso. Hundreds came from near and far to pay tribute. We gather to honor our brother. We give thanks to God for the years that he allowed us to share in his life. His family and brothers in blue came together for his funeral service at St. Rita of Kasha Shrine Chapel. Andres was one of the bravest and most selfless individuals I have ever known. John Vasquez holding back tears, describing his cousin as a passionate officer who always put others first. We said farewell, but we will never forget you. We will never forget the sacrifices you made and more than anything, the memories you leave behind. Vasquez Lasso served five years with the Chicago Police Department. His commander in the 8th District, Brian Springs, says the young officer dreamed of becoming a detective one day. And he would have achieved it. Anyone who knew him noted the pride in his appearance, his professionalism, his dedication to fitness, and his passion for football. Vasquez Lasso migrated with his family to Chicago from Colombia when he was 18 years old. He went to college and at 27 years old enrolled in the police academy. His mother, Rocio, always called him my police officer and said he never stopped working to take care of, protect, and provide for his family. The service also held in Spanish to celebrate his roots. His wife, Melina, too heartbroken to speak, held on to his family. He was such a good and courteous husband, according to Melena, that her friends teased her about how much of a gentleman he was. He also loved to salsa, often taking Melena to dance with him. On March 1st, Officer Vasquez Lasso woke up not knowing the day would be his last. A reminder, his fellow officers say, of the risks they take every day to protect Chicago. He best describes himself in this post. Behind this uniform, there's another human being just like you. This uniform doesn't make me a robot. This uniform is not a symbol of hate. This is not a symbol of us versus them. I hate injustice and lawlessness as well. 
That's why I became a cop. Even though my actions won't change the world, I can change the world of every person I get in contact with. And that's definitely what he did. For Chicago Tonight, I'm Joanna Hernandez. After the funeral, Lasso's family attended a private burial service. And now to some more of today's top stories. Workers at Chicago's Field Museum have voted to unionize. Nearly 300 employees at the field took part in the vote. 73% approved the new union, which will fall under the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees Council 31. Caps off a long and sometimes bitter fight between the workers and the museums. And next up, negotiating their first ever labor contract. The proposed extension of Chicago's CTA Red Line South could get a major infusion of federal cash. Senators Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth announced $350 million in federal transit dollars for the project that would extend the Red Line from 95th South to 130th. The federal funding comes after Mayor Lightfoot pushed through a new tax increment financing district to raise nearly half a billion dollars of local money for the project. If completed, the Red Line extension would add 5.6 miles of new track and connect neighborhoods like Altgeld Gardens that up until now have been transit deserts. Bellboll Prairie in Rockford is no more, at least most of the prairie that is. Demolition of the prairie happened today to make way for an expansion of the Rockford Airport after the FAA gave approval to the project. Preservationists had hoped to stop the project in its tracks to save the natural area and protect an endangered bee species. Preservationists now say they will try to preserve what is left of the soil and move it to another location. Movement in Springfield today on a bill that would provide disability benefits to first responders sidelined by COVID. The bill was passed in committee. It would give firefighters, police and paramedics the ability to claim disability benefits if they got COVID and assume the COVID was a result of their work. The bill comes after Comptroller Susana Mendoza blasted the Lightfoot administration when her brother, a police officer, was refused full disability despite suffering major health complications from COVID. Lightfoot says she was bound by state law and the decision of the police pension board. Up next, a controversy over a new grocery store in Englewood. Right after this. Chicago Tonight is made possible in part by Alexandra and John Nichols. The Jim and Kay Maybe family. The Polk Brothers Foundation. And the support of these donors. Last spring, Whole Foods shocked and angered many Englewood residents when it announced it would close its location at 63rd and Halstead. Many residents and community leaders were clear about one thing. They didn't want to see the store replaced by the discount grocer Save-A-Lot. Despite significant pushback, that is the current plan. As part of our Chicago Tonight in Your Neighborhood series, Nick Blumberg has been looking into that original deal that brought Whole Foods into the space. He's in Englewood tonight with producer Blair Paddock. Nick. Paris, when Save-A-Lot signs went up on the former Whole Foods at Englewood Square earlier this year, a lot of community members were disappointed and angry. But a copy of the lease between Whole Foods and the realty company that owns Englewood Square, obtained by WTTW News, shows that Save-A-Lot was one backup plan all along. Save-A-Lot is wrong for Englewood. That's the message the Resident Association of Greater Englewood's Asia Butler has been spreading for more than a year. They have a horrible brand. 
in black communities. And most Save-A-Lots are in black and brown communities. I mean, from the products that they have on the shelves, from the um, low quality vegetables and, and fruits. Despite that outcry, Save-A-Lot operator Yellow Banana was picked to sublease the grocery space from Whole Foods. When we saw that sign go up a few weeks ago, our members were up in arms about it. WTTW News obtained the original lease between Whole Foods and realty company DL3, which owns the space. The document outlines what happens if Whole Foods wants to leave and gives right of first refusal to a now-closed grocery business that was also managed by the head of DL3, Leon Walker. City records show that Walker's business, which has since been dissolved, was once licensed to operate a Save-A-Lot in Roseland. Wow, wow. Um, that is what we thought, and we wanted to see that in writing. We have been told several times that that wasn't the case. And so that's not surprising, but it is disturbing. In a phone interview, DL3's Walker declined to get into the specifics of the lease, but said DL3 and Yellow Banana have no business relationship and that the decision to bring in Yellow Banana rested entirely with Whole Foods. Speaking generally about the lease with Whole Foods, Walker said our primary concern was that they didn't change the use from grocery to another kind of store. Quote, Whole Foods had an aggressive effort to canvas the market and talk to a lot of other retailers, but it's a small format store in a community where the population has generally declined and in an overall grocery environment that is under tremendous pressure. This information um, was never told to our community. 16th Ward Alderman Stephanie Coleman says she's upset at the lack of transparency and so far hasn't had a good experience with Yellow Banana, the new company coming in to operate the Save-A-Lot in Englewood. That firm's also gotten millions in city TIF and grant money to rehab and reopen several other Save-A-Lots and to build a new one. God bless the pre-existing grocery stores. They should have that investment, but we don't trust this yellow banana brand. They've yet to show us what they can do because they don't have a model. Inglewood is not a guinea pig. We are not an experiment. Coleman says to combat food deserts, places like Englewood need city investment in efforts like the Go Green Community Fresh Market at 63rd and Racine. It's a neighborhood grocery store, it's a platform for local food entrepreneurs, it's a driver of health outcomes, and it's about building resilient food ecosystems. The market is a partnership among the Inner City Muslim Action Network, E.G. Wood, Rage, and Teamwork Englewood. It's part of the larger Go Green on Racine effort, which is also working to repurpose a shuttered school and reopen the Racine stop on the Green Line. It's really about putting in concentrated investment in a small geography and really bringing about economic uh, revitalization to the, to the intersection and, and seeing its ripple effects across the neighborhood. The Community Fresh Market, where we're standing right now, is celebrating its one-year anniversary. Now, coming up, we'll tell you more about that effort to reopen the shuttered Green Line station that we mentioned. And we should also mention that Yellow Banana did not respond to a request for comment. Paris. All right, Nick, we'll look forward to that report. And up next, where did COVID come from? Stay with us.
three years now into the COVID-19 pandemic, new questions emerge as to how exactly it began. The Department of Energy and the FBI both assess that COVID-19 may indeed have leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China. Albeit the FBI has low confidence in its assessment, while FBI Director Christopher Wray says they have moderate confidence in theirs. So what exactly does it all mean? Joining us now to help provide some clarity is Dr. Robert Murphy, Professor of Infectious Diseases and Executive Director of the Institute for Global Health at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Murphy, we've talked so many times, but never in person. Yes. Great, great to meet you in person. Thanks great for being here. Great to meet here. you, too. All right, so what do you make of the DOE and the FBI weighing in on this, saying now with low confidence or moderate confidence, it could have originally leaked out of a Wuhan lab and not at a wet market? First of all, this is a question that's been asked since the beginning of the pandemic. So it's a, it's a three-year-old question uh, with no new information, none. You know, they say there's new stuff. There is, there is nothing. I've seen zero. And what you have is the Department of Energy making this statement with low confidence. Low confidence is right next to no confidence. I mean, it's low, low Well, why confidence. even make that uh, statement if they have low confidence in it? Doesn't that mean they have moderate or higher confidence in another theory? It's, 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 it's basically meaningless. And what does the Department of Energy have anything to do with the pandemic, with a virus, with how diseases are transmitted? I mean, I think it's a little bit out of their wheelhouse. I mean, all the other medical groups, the NIH, the CDC, the White House group, whatever, they don't think it came from the lab, or they think it's the, the possibility is really remote. You know, doctors don't say anything's 100%. So even I'll say, yeah, it's a it's one percent chance or in less. In science, you can't really say you, anything. You really 100%. can't what, say a hundred percent. What about the World Health Organization? They, they say the same thing. The same thing. Isn't part of the problem here that China's been so opaque that inspectors really haven't gotten a lot of access to get answers? Okay, the Chinese are opaque. However, they led two international group of scientists, each group at two separate times. Each group included an American. They came. They interviewed people at the lab. They interviewed people at the market. They interviewed the public health people. Uh, they did a huge report, and they said the same thing. They said the same thing. It's, we can't tell. It's less than 1% chance. Uh, it most likely came from these animals. Is there anything about the, the biology of the coronavirus that sheds light on whether it's spillover versus lab leak? Yeah, the, the genetics of the Wuhan virus. Now, we shouldn't be naming it after a city. Uh, because it really didn't start there. It started in some animal, probably in southwest China someplace, and then was sold in a market. Uh, the, uh, it, it, the genetics of that is very similar to what's in the animals. And we know that coronaviruses go in a lot of animals. They go in deer. You know, cats have it. You know, lions in the zoo uh, have coronavirus. There's coronavirus really in many animals, and th- there should be really no surprise. And the genetics fits. So you're saying because of those things, it still makes the most sense to theorize that it came from a, yeah. a market. It, that's how it goes. Uh, the other thing is, you would think after three years that there would have been some whistleblower. There would have been somebody, one person, come forward with some real evidence. Nothing. At the same time, isn't it strange that, uh, maybe it's just a coincidence, that this lab studying coronaviruses is in Wuhan and this is ostensibly where the virus initiated. Well, I mean, the lab is studying viruses. So, I mean, it's just a bunch of viruses, and coronavirus comes, so, of course, they started to study that. I mean, there are labs all over the world, by the way. So, you know, this was just happens to be a lab. The lab did have some funding from the United States for a different, completely different project. 
uh, completely unrelated. And we know that so many different conspiracy theories kind of bubbled up around this, the fact that there are labs, that the U.S. might have had involvement in things like that because well, of these these kind of tangential things, conspiracy theories well, arise. And it, and it goes back to Christopher Wray. I saw that, uh, that, that presentation, the head of the FBI. Um, moderate confidence. Christopher Wray is a philosophy major from Yale University. He then got his JD, a lawyer degree, also from Yale. That guy probably hasn't taken a biology class since he was in high school. I mean, what is he talking about? The reason why our head criminal investigators in the country are suspicious about the lab is because the Chinese are so opaque. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to testify. So when somebody refuses to testify, you know, they think you're guilty. But I think it's just, that's just the way the Chinese are. If that's exactly how it happened, then they will never admit it, it sounds like. Never. Let's hear from uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, a former chief medical advisor to President Biden. He had this to say about the level of preparedness for the next pandemic. We're partially ready. There are some things that have gone right with the pandemic preparedness and response for COVID-19 and some things that need to be substantially improved upon. It may not occur in the next year or 10 years or 15 years, but there will be another pandemic as history has taught us. You are on early on in this pandemic predicting that it would be the deadliest event in the United States history or one of the deadliest events have we learned anything in this three years? We learned how to make vaccines fast. Dr. Fauci and myself and many other experts in the field, we didn't think we would ever get a vaccine for well over a year, like a year and a half or two years when they started making the vaccine. And Mm -hmm. it was approved 10 months later. Mm -hmm. That was great. And then the testing, I don't know if you you remember back to uh, early 2020, you couldn't get a test if you had a a million dollars. It wasn't just testing. People were having trouble getting gear. They were having trouble getting masks, PPE. Masks, everything. None of that was there. And now, because of a program called RADx, Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics for Coronavirus, like we like to use the acronyms, uh, there's over 8 million tests done per day. And 50 companies got emergency use authorization for tests. The tests are everywhere. That's gonna, that is really going to help us in the future. As far as the public health point, which is what Dr. Fauci was just talking about, we're not ready. And could the next pandemic be deadlier than the coronavirus, as deadly as the coronavirus was? Well, look at just coronaviruses that have affected humans. You know, up until 2003... It was just a common cold. Then we had SARS. SARS, hard to transmit, only 10, approximately 10,000 people got it, but 10% died. Okay. Then there was MERS, Mideast uh, Respiratory Syncytial Virus, the one in Saudi Arabia for the most part. That still exists, but only less than 2,000 people have gotten it, but right. 30% died. Wow. And then we have COVID-19. So millions of people have gotten uh, the virus, but less than 1% have died. So what's but the still next so one? much more contagious here. It's smaller percentage, still lots of people. Well, but the next pandemic, you heard just Dr. Fauci say, there's going to be another pandemic. I say the same thing. Every infectious disease doctor in the United States is probably saying the same thing. What's going to be the next pandemic? What if the mortality rate is 3%? What if it's 5%? What if it's like SARS and it's 10%? Especially if it's this contagious. If it, yes, exactly. So, you know, it's a, this is just a wake-up call. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Murphy, we appreciate you being here. And uh, all the times we've talked to you about this, uh, we will be talking to you again. Thanks so much. Great. And up next, we check back in with Nick Blumberg, who's reporting live from Chicago's Englewood neighborhood. But first, we take a look at the weather.
frightening looking forecast there. And now we toss it back to Nick Blumberg, who is in Englewood with producer Blair Paddock as part of our In Your Neighborhood series. Nick. Paris, a mile-long gap between Green Line stations. That's what some Greater Englewood residents have faced for nearly 30 years since the Racine station shut down. After years of efforts to reopen that shuttered stop, there's been quite a bit of momentum in recent months, including an outpouring of support at the ballot box last week. This stop is abandoned. And it's shows a sign of what the city of Chicago has done to the Inglewood area. When the CTA closed the Racine stop on the Green Line in January 1994, it was supposed to be a temporary closure for repairs. The station never reopened. To get off at Halstead or to get off at Ashland, we had to spend extra money on CTA fares to travel back towards Racine. Or we had our young people traveling through areas that was uncharted for them through different neighborhoods trying to get back to Racine, which caused a safety issue. For years, local leaders have pushed to get the station reopened. They got an advisory referendum on the ballot in the February 28th election, asking voters whether they wanted to see Racine back up and running. 93% of voters, not only in the, the precinct of this uh, station or surrounding precincts, but all precincts of the 16th Ward, voting yes and demanding that the station be reopened. In March of last year, the CTA told WTTW News it didn't have the funding needed to reopen the station and said a 2017 ridership study found the station would see fewer average weekday rides than when it was closed in the 1990s. By December of last year, CTA President Dorville Carter said in a Sun-Times op-ed, quote, The CTA and the city are fully committed to pursuing a reopened Racine Green Line station and making it a vital component of the community's revitalization. And in January, the CTA got $2 million in federal funding for a feasibility study on reopening the stop. There's community support, uh, CTA support, and um, there's already some catalytic investments going on, so that's a really good opportunity. The Metropolitan Planning Council's Audrey Wenning says it's not just about improved travel times. It's a way to add momentum to ongoing economic development and quality of life improvements. Opening the station could even build further upon that, help attract population, um, and create a much more walkable and vibrant area. The CTA says the effort is still in the early stages, with the full cost and timeline unclear. In a statement, the transit agency tells WTTW News, quote, as with all CTA planning processes, communication and coordination with the community will be an important component. And the CTA looks forward to discussion with all community stakeholders and residents. For residents, this is a no-brainer for a lot of decision makers. It, it, it either is or should be a no-brainer to open something that should have never been closed and to um, put a concentrated effort in supporting corridors in Eaglewood such as racing. Nick, you mentioned there isn't yet a dedicated funding source to reopen the station, so how much money does it need? Well, the CTA told us that the estimated price tag could climb as high as $100 million. That would be to do everything from reconstructing the station house, the platform, things like doing some historic preservation work. Now, the uh, CTA says the first step is to do preliminary design and engineering. Once they've gotten through that, they can figure out how best to proceed and which local and national sources might have the money to fund this project. All right, Nick, we'll have to keep following both of those stories, the grocery store and the Racine Green Line stop. Thanks so much.
Hollywood's biggest night is this weekend. The 95th Academy Awards are on Sunday, and this year's list of nominees sees historic Asian representation. But the Oscars are still coming under fire over issues of representation, notably the fact that the film The Woman King didn't receive a single nomination. We explore the topic of representation at the Oscars on Chicago Tonight Black Voices. Here's a sneak peek of that conversation with host Angel Ito. I think it's telling that The Woman King was not nominated for a single category. And by all looks, it did everything right. It was a $50 million budget film. It was a box office success. Um, black, entirely black uh, lead female cast, black director. And so the question is, how could the Academy not recognize that when other films, especially in the act action-adventure category, have historically been nominated? Mm. Robert, what about you? What are your thoughts about zero nominations? Um, you know, there's a part of me that's very surprised by it, and yet there's a part of me that isn't surprised by it, knowing the historical barriers behind black directors and filmmakers and black stories being honored. Um, and so when I, on nomination morning, when the nominations dropped and I saw The Woman King was not nominated, I was shocked to see it totally blanked. And yet I wasn't shocked that it underperformed, mostly because we've seen this story before. You can watch that full conversation on Chicago Tonight Black Voices this Saturday night at 6.30. And that's our show for this Thursday night. Please join us tomorrow night at 7 for The Week in Review and at 10 for Chicago Tonight. A new report shows black and Latino drivers are much more likely to get pulled over by police than white drivers. And an all-affordable condo building gets ready for its debut in the West Old Town area. Now for all of us here at Chicago Tonight, I'm Paris Schutz. Thanks for watching. Stay warm out there. Good evening. Closed captioning is made possible by Robert A. Clifford and Clifford Law Offices, a personal injury law firm dedicated to preserving the dignity and rights of all individuals.